Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Luke's English Podcast is here to help you learn English through listening. But uh, to get fully rounded English, you must also work on your speaking. You need to practice, 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 practice the five Ps. And... Uh, italki can help you do that. Uh, with italki, there are just basically loads of qualified teachers and also native speakers uh, that you can uh, connect with and uh, schedule either English lessons for various things or just conversations with native speakers at various prices, loads of teachers to choose from. It's very like well-used and professional service. And uh, with italki, when you buy some talking time, uh, they will send you a voucher which is worth a free lesson. So uh, that's available because you listen to this podcast. To get the offer, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, folks, and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I'm going to go through another online text adventure in order to try to solve a murder mystery set in Victorian London. It's been a while since I did one of these on the podcast. Several times in the past, I have read through online uh, a, a detective adventure stories written by Peter Carlson and available at textadventures.com. So I have done this a couple of times before. There were episodes 338 and 339, uh, and that was a murder mystery detective story. And uh, then episodes 425 and 426 called The Victorian Detectives, in which I was j- uh, joined by Amber and Paul. And you can find links to those um episodes uh, on the page for this episode all right so they uh, so these are based on stories and text adventures that you can find at textadventures.com i only use the ones done by peter carlson and in fact after recording the first one peter got in touch with me i think he sent me an email to tell me that he liked the way that i did it and was i was welcome to use his other stories so kudos to peter for being behind us on this one In the first episode, I read through the story entitled Victorian Detective, and then the second one was the sequel, Victorian Detective 2, and now we're on to the third instalment of the series. That's right, it's Victorian Detective 3. So the idea behind these text adventures is that you read through some text on a web page and there are certain words highlighted which you can click on for extra information and every now and then you have to make a decision which can affect the way the story turns out. Uh, Each decision relies on your observational skills and your reading of the information provided and you have to be like a Sherlock Holmes style detective or a text detective if you will to work out the right choices based on the evidence that you've read. This sort of thing is great for learning English because you can do tons of reading with very specific goals each time. 
It's online, so you can check out new words when you uh, come across them. And the fact that you're part of the story makes it extra engaging. You can also read along with me as I play the game or play it uh, on your own later. And if you do that, then consider leaving a comment or review at textadventures.co.uk thanking Peter Carlson for his work. So... um, Yeah, you can check out loads of these games at textadventures.co.uk and I will let you explore them in your own time. Right, so what about Victorian Detective 3? In this series, we play the part of a brilliant detective who has skills similar to those of Sherlock Holmes. You have perfect memory, demonstrated by the fact that you can reread any text so far. Uh, Your super-fast decision-making ability is represented by the unlimited time that we have to make our choices in the game. And our vast knowledge is represented by the internet, and we are, in fact, encouraged to Google any things that we don't know about while playing the game. And that sort of ability to Google is like this detective's amazing knowledge. As a detective, we have a police partner that we work with called Mardler. He's a bit like the Lestrade character in Sherlock Holmes in that he is a police officer who often gets things wrong and is a bit competitive with you. So Mardler is our partner. So uh, so here's how it's going to go. I'll read through each section and read all the other peripheral information that you can get by clicking on different words. And I'll explain things as we go if I think it's all getting a bit complicated. I'll invite you to think about the right option each time. And if you want, you can read along with me by following the link on the website. I have no idea how long this will take. It might be several episodes. It might even be more. I don't know how long it's going to take. We will see. It's basically going to take as long as it as long as it's going to take, basically. I haven't done this particular adventure, this game before, so I don't know how long it will last. In this episode, this particular one you're listening to now, I think I'll go for about an hour and then I'll find a good place to pause the story. Some kind of cliffhanger would be good. So your task as you listen to this is just to try to keep up with the story. Perhaps think about each decision too. And if I make a mistake at any point, then you can jump into the comments section and explain your thoughts. But mainly just listen, just try and keep up with the story. And uh, I hope you find it interesting and enjoyable as a way to learn English through listening. Now, I am slightly concerned that my reading of texts, there's going to be a lot of me reading through texts here. I'm slightly concerned that that might distance you from the story slightly, because we know, don't we, that for some reason, it's much more engaging when you're listening to someone who is kind of speaking spontaneously and speaking to you specifically, right? So that somehow it grabs and catches and holds your attention a lot more than when someone is reading a text. We know this from presentations. Uh, presentations where someone co- goes up with a script and they just read through the script, they're somehow far less captivating than the ones where the person just sort of talks to the people in the room without uh, you know, reading something from a script. So I'm slightly concerned that as I read through a lot of text in this, that it, it'll kind of pull you out of it or something like that. So I'm a bit concerned about that, that it might distance you slightly from the story. I really want you to concentrate on imagining the surroundings of each scene. So try to visualise it if you can. It helps if you really visualise each situation as you listen to it. Use any descriptive language that you can find. Listen out for little descriptions of the environment and the characters. Any descriptive language you can find to help you paint a visual image of what you're hearing in the story and this can make a big difference to your ability to keep up 
and stay involved all the way through. And there's a better chance that you're going to learn and remember things as well if you try to paint a visual picture for yourself while listening to the story. So for this story, we're in London in 1861. Victoria, Queen Victoria, is on the throne. Uh, The American Civil War is breaking out in the USA. London at this time is probably quite a dirty, smoky, sort of foggy sort of place with some very upmarket areas and also some slums. People used horses and horse-drawn carriages to get around and do things. At night, it was probably very dark. There were some probably basic gas lights in some nicer parts of town. Uh, It's basically the world of Sherlock Holmes that we're dealing with here. So right, without any further ado then, let's get the let's begin the story. I should say that there's a little bit of chess at the beginning. Uh you start the story in, in the middle of a chess game. And I admit that I've done this little section of the story several times in order to get the right sequence of moves because I'm not a great chess player, which probably doesn't bode well for my skills as a detective either, but I'm not a very good chess player, so I had to kind of cheat my way through the first three decisions in order to get the right sequence of moves to win the game. Um, Also, as we go through this, I'm picking up or losing points based on my decisions. Each decision that you make gains points or loses points for you. And that's based on whether you've made a good deduction or not. So it's really all about deductive reasoning and looking at looking at the evidence that you've been given. So when I click on different words highlighted in the text, we need to really remember this these bits of evidence. They'll help us to make the right decision. But And you get more points if you make better decisions. I think it's not possible to die in the game, but the outcome might be different, and your score can be different each time, depending on your decisions each time. Okay, so I think we're going to get started. So I just need to go to textadventures.co.uk, find Victorian Detective 3, and play online. And here we go then. Okay. So imagine, ladies and gents, uh, it is London in 1891, late autumn, as winter, the, the tendrils of winter are creeping in. Here we are in the Ashworth bookstore, and um, indoors, probably quite cosy inside. And here is where we begin. So you sit across from one of your few friends in this world, Julian Ashworth, an acclaimed historian, staring down at his new wooden chess set. He'd carved the pieces himself, the odour of varnish still present on his hands and set. So with Julian Ashworth, he's an acclaimed historian, so a famous historian. And we're playing chess, and he he actually carved these chess pieces himself and varnished them. And you can still smell the varnish. Varnish is like a sort of clear paint that you put on wood to protect it. Um, Okay, so we're playing chess with him. And he says, it's your move, he says, tapping the game clock. It's rhythmic ticking floating through Julian's large bookstore. You look up at Julian. He's carefully focused on the chess game brow furrowed in concentration if your brow is furrowed it means you're kind of your the area just above your eyes and your nose is kind of uh, wrinkled together because you're concentrating so julian is is carefully concentrating his his hand is scratching his messy red hair you've always been a loner through life and you consider julian one of your few true friends a loner is someone who just always spends their time on their own so you apparently the, we have always been a loner, but Julian is one of our true, true, 
few true friends. So let's have a look at the bookstore because the large bookstore is highlighted so we can have a look at that. So Julian's bookstore is large and well organised overlooking a busy London street. You can imagine it's maybe like on Charing Cross Road or something. The constant bustle of hooves and footsteps outside blends to mimic the sound of a waterfall or a rushing stream. So there's this sound going on outside as loads of people walk up and down. There are horses trotting up and down as well. Hooves, uh, a hoof is a horse's foot. So hooves is the plural and that's horse's feet. The sound of hooves and footsteps. Um, Okay. And the bustle. A bustle is like a busy, lots of activity. The hustle and bustle of hooves and footsteps outside. So this is kind of where we are. We're inside playing this chess game and there's like lots of people going up and down outside. Uh, Julian's expertise lies in military history and his input has helped you on a few cases over the years. You visit him every few weeks and over time you've watched his bookmark Diligently travel through volumes detailing the Napoleonic Wars of 1803 to 1815. So he's an expert in military history and um, we visit him every couple of weeks. And we've noticed that he's reading books about the Napoleonic Wars and his bookmark has been moving through them. Okay, so he's been slowly working his way through the history of the Napoleonic Wars. Okay, Um, let's have a look at Julian. So, Julian studies the chessboard deep in thought. You notice bags under his eyes. He's tired. Up late the last few nights? You can smell varnish on his hands from meticulously fashioning the chess pieces and finishing them. You spot flecks of of black and white ink on his fingers and traces of blue chalk on his thumb. Looks like billiard chalk, like chalk you use when you're playing snooker or pool or billiards. Sometimes Julian goes out to drink and play pool with his publisher, Martin Wells, when he finishes a research paper. Well, Julian's research papers have been growing popular recently, and in his field of study, at least, he's well-known and respected. Okay, so all these details are telling us something about Julian. What's he been doing? He's tired. He's been up late. He's got ink on his fingers. He's got some uh, chalk from playing pool. He normally plays pool when he's finished a research paper with his publisher. Okay, well, let's carry on. And so the, um, so I, I now have to go through the chess moves and I'm, I've cheated. I already know the right move. So queen is first and we're kind of blocking the king in a corner and then we go pawn next and another pawn. I'm not going to describe the chess moves in any more detail than that, but I've got him uh, checkmate, which is like what you say when you, when their king, uh, is trapped checkmate you say as julian chuckles and slides back into his chair to chuckle is to kind of laugh <laughs> um, running a hand through his hair good game he says i thought i had you for a minute to have someone if you have someone or if you've got someone it means that you're going to get them you've got them trapped i have you now i've got you now like i've got you i'm gonna i'm gonna you know get you now i've got you I thought I had you for a minute. I truly do enjoy these games, as infrequent as they are. I know how work as a big famous detective keeps you busy. You crack a smile. Some of your recent cases had landed in the paper. The newspapers just make it harder for me to go undercover, you joke. I'm better when criminals don't know my face. Okay, as we continue. Are you working on any big cases currently, hotshot? 
asks Julian. No, but I'm sure it won't be long before I'm entrusted to catch another raving lunatic or greedy killer, you respond. But enough about me. You have big news too, am I right? This is where we have to guess what um, Julian's news is. So it's either he's he's engaged, like engaged to be married. I don't think it's that because we've seen no evidence at all suggesting that he's going to get married. Next one is, you finished writing another research paper. And the third one is, you're moving out of London. I think we can cancel out moving out of London. It's definitely, he's finished writing a research paper, ink on his hands, reading the history books. He's also been playing pool, which he does when he publishes something. So it's definitely that one. And it's correct. Julian chuckles. "Um, What's the point of conversation with you? You already know what I'm going to say. You'd think I'd be used to this by now. How do you know that? And you say, well, I figured you've been researching the Napoleonic Wars for some time now, judging by the rate your bookmark has been moving through those books. You point out as you gesture to the books on Julian's desk. You have black and white ink on your fingers from the printing and erasing ink cartridges for your typewriter. And there are bags under your eyes. So you've been working late, typing a lot to finish the paper. I also noticed blue billiard chalk on your thumb. You like to play pool with your publisher when you finish a big project. Last night, am I right? Julian laughs, his warm and encouraging laugh once again. Is everything really so transparent to you? You never cease to impress me. You hear the jingle of the small silver bell on the entrance to Julian's bookstore. Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. Not a customer, though. You recognise the familiar... Um, confident footsteps and rattle of Mardler's pistol and handcuffs. I thought I might find you here, your, par- your police partner says. There's been a murder, and it's a weird one. You get up and excuse yourself from Julian's table. Always a pleasure, you say to him, as you leave with Mardler into the crowded London streets. OK, so that was a nice visit to Julian. I wonder if Julian's going to come back into the story at some point. But Mardler's come in saying there's been a murder and it's, and it's a weird one. I need to find a voice for Mardler. There's been a murder. It's a weird one. Maybe Mardler could sound like that. Mardler's like a bit of a cockney. There's been a murder. It's a weird one. Or maybe Mardler could sort of sound like that, like he's from the West Country. Where we've got a murder. It's a weird one. No, I think he's going to be a bit of a cockney, Mardler. Yeah, like he could be the sort of sort of character that you'd uh, find on EastEnders or something. He's a bit of a Cockney. Okay, right, let's continue as we go uh, with Mardler, the Cockney, who I think Mardler should always be smoking a cigarette while he's talking. That's what Mardler's going to be doing. Whereas I, you, me, us in this story, we're cut above the rest. We're these, this brilliant detective. Okay, let's continue. Harrison Way. You and Mardler take a cab across to Harrison Way. You walk out past the police perimeter around a mutilated corpse. Ugh. Oh, by the way, ladies and gents, this story might contain some graphic details and sort of descriptions of violence and blood and guts and other disgusting things. It's a murder mystery story after all. So if that's not your cup of tea, if you're squeamish and you don't like death and bodies and blood and guts and murder and all the gruesome and grim things that you would find, then you may as well step away now. Step away from the podcast if that's not your cup of tea. If you love that, if you love blood and guts and violence, then come with me as we continue the story. Okay, so we walk 
out past the police perimeter around a mutilated corpse. You know the way they put a perimeter around a dead body? You stand over the naked body of a woman who looks to be about 50 years old. There's a, her- there's a look of horrific terror on her face, mouth gaping open, eyes lifeless and cold. Most shocking, though, uh, is the fact that this woman's chest has been violently slashed open and her heart has been removed. Ugh. No identification, no clothes, no possessions at all besides a hairpin, says Mardler bleakly. She was uh, just found like this a while earlier, gutted like an animal and thrown out like trash. Preliminary tests are showing that she probably wasn't sexually attacked, only violently killed, mutilated and tossed out onto the street. (sighs) Who was this woman? Okay, so there are some bits of information that we can gather. So who was she? Was she an actress, a doctor or a teacher? Let's have a look at the naked dead body of the woman. You kneel next to the corpse, studying the fingers and feet. There's white chalk dust and dots of black ink on the fingers of the right hand. On the left hand, the fingertips are blistered. You look down at the feet and notice small strings of black lint from high-quality fabric between the toes. She must have had nice socks. White chalk dust. Sounds like a teacher. Left hand, fingers are blistered. Why would that be? And what's the thing about the socks? I don't know. Let's look at her face. The woman had a truly traumatic death. The corpse has long black hair that's been well-kept and cared for. You see a small fashionable pin in the woman's hair. It's silver and violet. This looks like the only possession of value that's been left on the body, a hairpin. There's also a minuscule, meaning very small, wad, like a little folded piece of dried paper stuck in the woman's hair. You unfold the wad, but find it's no more than a blank, thin piece of paper. What is that? Further down on the woman's neck, you see a red mark below the left side of her jaw. Some sort of irritation from long-term subtle friction. Black hair, well-kept. Hairpin in her hair. Uh, A tiny bit of dried paper in her hair, which is nothing, and a mark on her neck. Mm Mm-hmm. Are we getting anywhere? I'm I'm getting more like teacher-type vibes from her at this point, especially because of the white chalk. Her heart has been removed. This is horrible. Such violent behaviour. This looks like the work of a savage animal. Hmm, let's hope so. Let's hope there's some sort of horrible, psychotic monster in this story. That would be good. So, is the woman an actress, a doctor, or a teacher? I think she's a teacher. Right, folks? Sounds like a teacher. Yes, I got one point. Good, good. What does she probably teach? Maths, music, or chemistry? Uh, I think it's got to be music because the mark and the blisters, it's got to be a violin, which sits under your, under your chin, under your jaw, and the fingers on the strings might give you blisters. So I think she's a music teacher. Yes, very clever. She was probably a, is it a private school teacher, a public school teacher, or a college professor? Oh, gosh. Um, just a hairpin, no clothes, no possessions. Um, traumatic death. Long black hair that's been well-kept and cared for. And she had... What was the thing about the socks? Hmm. 
Nice socks, quality fabric. Private school, public school, college professor. I'm going to go private school teacher because it sounds like she's fairly well kept. You know, like she's got good socks, which suggests that if she's a private school teacher, maybe she gets more money. She can afford to buy nice socks and the nice hairpin. I'm going private school teacher. Could be wrong. Yes. Good. I got it. Excellent deduction. Okay, let's continue. I think she was a music teacher at a private school, you tell Mardler. How do you figure? Which means, how do you work that out? How do you figure that out? Asks Mardler, looking closer at the dead body, trying to see what you had seen and pieced together. She has chalk and ink on her fingers, you begin. A telltale sign of a teacher. Plus, there was a dried spitball in her hair. Ah, so she works with children. Because that's too childish for an adult. Remember spitballs? Do you ever do that at school? You take a little bit of paper... You put it in your mouth and you, you chew on it until it becomes a little pellet. And then you get an empty pen, like an empty biro, and you fire this spitball at various things. You could fire at the people or the blackboard or windows and stuff. So this teacher obviously had a little spitball in her hair there. So she worked with children. Okay, so... Um, She works with children because it's too childish for an adult. She has well-groomed hair, a stylish hairpin, and was wearing quality socks at one point. So I'm probably leaning towards private school. Plus, Plus, she teaches violin, so her students aren't too young to play or too poor to afford instruments. Wait, wait, violin, Mardler interrupts. That or viola, you say. She has blisters on her left fingertips from the strings and a mark on her neck, commonly known as Fiddler's Neck, from the instrument constantly resting against her skin. Judging by the severity of the blisters and the Fiddler's Neck, I'd say this woman was a very well-practiced musician. Mardler nods, smoking in comprehension. He's always smoking. That's his main character trait. Okay, ladies and gents, Mardler, he smokes and he's a bit of a cockney. Right, I say we start at Archfield Academy, you recommend. Why there? asks Mardler. Well, they're known for their outstanding music programme and their school colours correspond with this woman's hairpin. Silver and violet, you say. Okay, so let's go to um, Archfield Academy. Okay, let's move. Let's keep the story moving. There's a picture of... um, Archfield Academy looks very posh. Good catch on the school colours, mentions Mardler as you stand with him in the Archfield Academy office. The principal of Archfield Academy, Devon Gray, confirmed moments ago that Anne Annette Tone, their most esteemed music teacher, didn't show up to work today and matches the description of the dead body at Harrison Way. Hold on a minute. So they've gone to this school and it's the right school and uh, the um, principal says, yes, she didn't come in. Her name's Annette Tone. I can't believe this, mutters Gray as he slumps down into his chair. <sighs> Slump down in your chair is like sit in the chair uh, with like your back bent and your head down. He's slumped into the chair. The principal, Gray, is obviously quite devastated about this. Uh, white-faced and exasperated. I just can't believe something like this would happen to Annette. <laughs> Did Annette have any enemies? asks Mardler. Angry husband? Did she owe money? There's a long pause as Principal Grey thinks over Mardler's question. 
Well, there was an incident, he admits. Admit, Professor Gray is going to speak like this, OK? Posh and a little bit camp. Well, there was an incident, he admits. Gray rummages through the desk drawer for a moment. A desk drawer. It's like a thing you open and you keep pens and paper in it. He rummages through it. Like, Gray rummages through his desk drawer for a moment before retrieving a piece of paper. Someone left this, uh, someone left her this anonymous hate mail at her desk a couple of weeks ago. It was just after she got promoted to head of the music department. So someone left her some, uh, a piece of hate mail, which is a letter that you write expressing how much you hate someone. Um, well, it was probably someone from the school, a student or fellow teacher, because it was left in her classroom, you say. Maybe a frustrated music teacher that didn't get promoted. Uh, can I see some notes written by some of the other music teachers at this school? Principal Gray sends his assistant to retrieve documents written by other music teachers at Archfield Academy that have typewriters. He gives you ones by Albert York, the piano teacher, Janet Helsey, the flute teacher, Marilyn Sampson, the cello teacher, and who are you most suspicious of? Right. What the hell is going on here, folks? Are you following this? Yes? Okay. So Gray is gutted. He's like, oh, I can't believe this has happened to her. Ah. Oh. I can't believe this has happened to her. And um, did, she, did she have any enemies? And he did uh, remember, Gray remembers that she got some hate mail left on her desk. So who was it? One of the teachers. Let's have a look at the hate mail. We can read it. Annette, and this is the hate mail. Annette, you deserve death. You're a disgusting pig. You should leave and die. You're a terrible person that doesn't deserve to be happy. Ooh. Strong words there. You deserve death. You're a disgusting pig. You should leave and die. You're a terrible person that doesn't deserve to be happy. Ooh, okay. Right. So let's have a look at Albert York. Actually, wait a minute. Let's look at this again. In this note, the O's are all weird. It's like the O's are zeros instead of O's on a typewriter. It's like the weird O's. It's also very short sort of punchy sentences, you're de you deserve death, you're a disgusting pig, simple short sentences, and it's, it's addressed Annette. Okay, let's see. Albert York. Dear students, someone left behind a watch at yesterday's class. If you can describe the watch to me, I will gladly return it to you. Come to my office, room 342, for more information. So this is Albert York, the piano teacher. I can't see anything suspicious about this. The writing style doesn't match the writing on the hate mail. I'm not very suspicious of uh, Albert York. Let's have a look at the next one. Janet Helsey, the flute teacher. Class will be moved for, to room 132 next Thursday due to renovations. Make sure you remember your textbooks on that day because we will be going over chapter 12. We will have a quiz on the material on the following week. Mm, I don't see anything suspicious about that to you. The writing is a bit more direct, but it's not the sort of basic sentences that we had of the last one. I mean, of the hate mail. It's not as nice as the previous, as, as Albert York's one, but I don't really see anything suspicious about that either. So maybe it's going to be Marilyn Sampson, the cello teacher. <laughs> yeah, it's Marilyn Sampson. Because remember the thing I said about the O's, that they look weird? It's the same in hers. So this is, it's her. She definitely wrote the hate mail. 
And she wrote this. Dear class, don't forget there is a test next week on Friday. Make sure you study hard and especially focus on proper finger positioning. This exam will count as 10% of your final grade. Good luck, everyone. So not particularly cruel sounding, but uh, the weird O's, it's her. So we're suspicious of Marilyn Sampson, definitely. Yes, we got a point. So why her, asks Mardler. Look closely, you say, as you hold the anonymous note and one of Marilyn Sampson's notes side by side. Look. All typewriters have inherent imperfections, though they're often quite subtle. Look at the letter O in the hate mail versus Marilyn's note. They both have the same imperfect size. That's the most obvious connection between the two papers. Of course, I've noticed six other more subtle imperfections, which means we can safely assume that this hate mail was typed on Marilyn's typewriter. Right, let's go and see Marilyn. You and Mardler confront Marilyn Sampson about the hate mail. So what if I wrote it? Well, she's not a good employee anyway, shouts Marilyn, trying to justify herself. I mean, she's not even at work right now. Mardler speaks up. In your note, you wrote, you deserve death. And this morning, we found Annette Tone dead in the street. Marilyn is taken aback. Her face grows pale and scared. Wait, do you really think it was me? I didn't have anything to do with it, I swear. Marilyn hastily digs through her bag, and her hand returns, clutching two ticket stubs to an orchestra performance from the night before. I was watching the Red Mask or I was watching the Red Mask Orchestra last night with my husband. Mardler takes the tickets and examines them. He turns to you. This is a pretty good alibi. Assuming we can hear from some witnesses that confirm her whereabouts. So, listeners, are you following this? So, um, yes, she admitted to writing the uh, hate mail, but she denies accusations of murder and she says she has an alibi. She was at the theatre watching the Red Mask Orchestra with her husband. So we need, uh, she's got ticket stubs to, to prove it, but we need witness testimonies. So that's chapter one, done. Chapter one, Heartbreaker is now complete. And I've got seven out of seven points. Doing okay so far. So I have no idea how many chapters there are in this thing, but let's just keep pressing forward. I said before, um, I think I said before that I would do this for an hour and then find a place to stop before part two. I don't know how long the story will be. Anyway, let's continue. You and Mardler spend the rest of the day going over clues from the case and confirming Marilyn Sampson's alibi. It appears she was indeed occupied at the probable time of the murder, but you don't rule her out as a suspect entirely just yet. The afternoon turns to night, and you find yourself going over evidence in your lonesome London apartment, gazing out into the smoggy metropolis. Sleep doesn't come easily. Smog. You know, it's like a mix of smoke and fog. So smoggy. Um, uh, pollu air pollution is smog, basically. So... Cinder Street. It's morning in London as you and Mardler walk down Cinder Street in response to calls of another body. There's a thick, cold fog hanging, suspended in the air, chilling you through your argyle sweater and coat. You come upon the body. A middle-aged man, stripped naked and left lifeless, his chest torn open and heart removed. You study his pained face. He suffered as he died. 
looks like we have a serial killer sized Mardler. <sighs> and whoever it is, he's active and restless. Mardler stares down at the cold, dead body. Any ideas of this guy's. Any ideas of this poor guy's origin? You think for a moment. So, what's this guy's origin now? So, this middle aged man, dead, naked, with his heart removed. Let's have a look at the middle aged man. So, you carefully investigate the dead body. The hands are slightly irritated from chemicals, and you can faintly smell carbolic acid on them. You notice that they're very clean, with no grime or grit under the nails. An impressive and uncommon feat for the common Londoner. There's a faded scar on the left thumb that looks like it was caused by a cut with a finely serrated blade. So he works with chemicals, he's very clean, and he sometimes works with serrated blades like maybe that of a scalpel. Sounds like a doctor. He's not a carpenter. Serrated blade. Surgeon. I think he's a surgeon. Yes, I'm correct. Mm. This man was a surgeon, you speculate. His hands have been thoroughly cleaned with carbolic acid quite often. And he has a scar from a fine-toothed saw, a common surgical tool. If we look at his face, we can see four thin lines on his face from where a surgical mask has often been worn. Well, what hospital is he from? asks Mardler. One that uses surgical masks, you respond. There are many that still don't utilise that sanitary precaution. The hospital is also probably near birch trees, judging from the amount of birch tree pollen deep in his hair. Very clever, aren't we? So birch trees, these are like trees with a silvery bark, and I think they produce pollen. And pollen is stuff that like trees and plants produce in order to sort of multiply. You know what I mean? It's what like plants produce in order to sort of multiply in that. Pollen. Bees like to collect pollen and they transfer it between flowers, don't they? All right, so we seem to have worked out which hospital it is. Hollow Leaf Hospital. You and Mardler investigate several London hospitals before coming across Hollow Leaf, a technologically modern hospital surrounded by birch trees. The Chief of Medicine, Dr. Howard Erning, confirms the description of the corpse you found earlier, matches one of his brightest and most renowned surgeons, Dr. Matthew Ander. So, we've already identified the body. It's Dr. Matthew Ander. All right. And, Ander, such a tragedy. What's this, what's Dr. Erning going to sound like? Such a tragedy. No, it's too posh. Um, He's going to be like, such, such a tragedy. They're all going to sound the same, all these characters. Such a tragedy, asks uh, Sigh's Sigh is like <sighs> that's to sigh. <sighs> Such a tragedy, sighs Doctor Erning. But I must say, as a physician, I'm amazed at how you identified the body. That's how this physician is going to speak. He's going to speak like this. I must say, as a physician, I'm amazed at how you identified the body. Dr. Erning leans in close to your nose, studying it in awe. Your sense of smell is incredible. The fact that you recognise the odour of carbolic acid is outstanding. Is there anyone that would want to cause harm to Dr. Ander? Asks Mardler. I've... uh, Who is this speaking? Who is this? I've noticed that Dr. Ander and Dr. Yates one of our lead heart surgeons, haven't been getting along lately. 
There's also been some lunatic that's been showing up and harassing Dr. Ander, says Dr. Erning. He'll come to the hospital every few weeks looking for drugs. They got in a violent scuffle a few weeks back when Dr. Ander threw him out. Oh, my goodness. What's been going on? So, Dr. Ander is the dead guy, right? And he's not been getting on with this heart surgeon called Dr. Erning. And they had a fight and Dr. Ander threw him out. Heart surgeon. All these dead bodies keep turning up with no hearts, don't they? Sounds sounds fishy to me. You hear shouting from the entrance of the hospital and the three of you go to investigate. There's a crazed man covered in soot and dirt. Soot is like the black dust that comes from fires. Covered in soot and dirt, causing havoc in the entryway. His eyes are wild and dilated as he throws a nurse to the ground in rage. Ah, you can see dried blood under his nose. That's him, yells Dr. Erning. That's the man that had a conflict with that Dr. Ander. Freeze, shouts Mardler as he steps forward. The dirty man's eyes grow wide and he turns to bolt for the door, turns to run away. You and Mardler give hot pursuit, chasing him into the streets of London. Okay, action suddenly. Right, I've got to investigate a few things, though. So, when Dr. Erning said, Your sense of smell is incredible! Um, I can click on that. Indeed, your sense of smell and olfactory memory is nothing short of spectacular. You can feel yourself bombarded by the odour of Dr. Erning's coffee as he breathes in your direction. Smells like a Colombian strand of the coffee bean plant. You catch the distant fragrance of Muso Aimer, a rare French perfume, as a nurse walks by. Each odour paints a vivid picture in your mind. So we've got amazing, like, Spider-Man-level sense of smell. Is it Spider-Man? Does Spider-Man have good smell? I don't know. But we've got superhero-level smell abilities. And Dr. Erning's taste of coffee, like Colombian coffee, might that be interesting later? What else? Heart surgeons. Interesting. That's the only thing that's written. Clearly this doctor... What's his name again? Who is the who is the uh, the bad guy here? The crazy one. I can't remember his name. Doctor Yates. That's it. Right. So let's chase Doctor Yates. The man pushes through a crowd of Londoners as he rages through the street. He grabs a passing citizen and throws him back at you as you chase him. The confused citizen crashing onto the ground a few steps ahead of you. Huh. What are we going to do? We're going to jump over the citizen or we're going to go round him? So he grabs the citizen and throws him back at you. The confused citizen crashes onto the ground a few steps ahead of you. We're going to hurdle him, right? That's when you jump over him like that. Hurdle. Do. Right? Like in Mario, you do hurdling over turtles. That's what Mario does. We're not going to go round him. We're going to hurdle him. I hope this is the right decision. Oh dear, investigation fail. Why did why did that fail? You attempt to jump over the man, but at the same time he tries to rise back to his feet. You catch your foot on him and crash to the ground, scraping your palms on the hard road. Your palms are like the soft undersides of your hands. Ooh. Come on! Mardler shouts as he continues chasing the crazy man. You stumble back to your feet and catch up with Mardler, sweat forming on your brow. <sighs> You're catching up with the lunatic when he turns and darts out into traffic. So the crazy person has turned 
and just run in front of traffic in the road. He's darted out into traffic quickly. There's a cab to your right that's recklessly bouncing down the road. Oh dear. So we need to run into the street, but there's a taxi coming and it's recklessly bouncing down the road. Let's have a look at the cab. Oh, there's a little map here. So we've got the London street. (laughs) Oh God. So we are crossing the street at eight. There's maths. Oh God. Maths is never my strong point. Oh dear. Uh, So we're crossing the street at 80 metres a second. There's 6.7 metres for us to travel. The cab is going um, perpendicular to us at a speed of 12.6 metres per second. And they've got a distance of 12.1 metres to go. Okay, so if the cab is going 12.6 metres and it's got 12.1 uh, meters to go it's going to arrive there in just under a second right it's going to come in at just under a second how much less than a second is it 12 meters at 12 minutes 12 meters a second and it's 12.1 meters so it's going to be just under a second yeah so i'm going eight meters a second and i've got just 6.7 meters to cover i'm going faster The distance speed ratio. (laughs) I think I'm going faster. I think it's me. Am I fast enough? Yes, I think I am. Because like basically the ratio of 12.1 to 12.6 is like smaller than the ratio of 6.7 to 8. So even though I'm going slower than the cab, the distance, the relative distance I have to travel, I think is less. And so actually uh, the distance I'm going to carry over time or something it's probably shorter. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna uh, commit and run past the cab. Come on, maths. Yes, I got it. That is that the first time maths has been actually useful in my life. I studied it at school. Never did very well. I got a C at GCSE level in maths, and then said goodbye to maths basically until now. So it came in useful. Okay, investigation score. Plus one. You put your head down and sprint across the road. You can hear the carriage to your right skidding through loose dirt as it tries to stop, and you feel the rush of wind as it careens behind you, missing you by a fraction of a second. Why is this cab driving like like that? No idea. Mardler is running beside you again as you close in on the fleeing man. He looks back and sees you, jumping in surprise, before tripping on a discarded piece of garbage and crashing to the ground. So I'm because I'm I managed to catch up with him. He's surprised in trips on a piece of rubbish on the ground. Mardler, uh? oh no, this is not Mardler. Mardler is running beside you in clothes on the fleeing. This is the fleeing man. The fleeing man. Fleeing means running away. He looks back and sees you, and then he trips on a piece of rubbish. Mardler tackles him like a rugby tackle and restrains him. Restrains him. Stay down. He barks. Uh, let me go. Let me go. The, the man howls hoarsely. What's gotten into this guy? Mardler yells as he struggles to contain the man. The man is under the influence of morphine, alcohol or cocaine. Is it morphine, alcohol or cocaine? Well, knowing what I know about morphine, alcohol and cocaine, I would say that this guy sprinting like a crazy person is probably not on morphine. I think morphine is more likely to make you want to just sort of sit down for a bit. I would Not that I would know from experience, but just, you know, it's common knowledge, isn't it? Alcohol, 
it could be alcohol because he he sort of um, seemed to fall over, but he fell over because he was suddenly shocked and surprised. I think the guy's on cocaine because he's, you know, like uh, full of energy and seems to be uh, manic. I think it's cocaine. Yes, I'm right. He's high on cocaine, you say. Dilated pupils, bloody nose. Ah, of course. Hoarse voice. Like that. He speaks like that. That's how this bloke speaks, because I guess the cocaine's done something to his voice. Aggressive behaviour. He has all the symptoms of a cocaine addict. That's why he's always lurking at Hollowleaf Hospital. He's trying to score some drugs. Mardler pats down the suspect. It's like searches the suspect and reveals a few bottles of pills from different hospitals around London. No wonder he ran from us. This addict's been stealing drugs from hospitals all around town. So the guy's a, 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 a drug addict and a thief. Hmm. I want to see Yates. No, it's what's his voice. I want to see Yates. I want to see Yates, cries the addict. Yates? Mardler looks over to you. Wasn't that one of the surgeons, the heart surgeon that didn't like Dr. Ander? You nod in agreement. I'll go and find him in the hospital. You take this guy in for questioning, you say. Mardler cooperates and you venture back towards the hospital. You find Dr. Erning and he points you towards Dr. Yates. You catch up with Dr. Yates just as he's leaving the grounds. Uh, Dr. Yates, you say, I have a few questions for you. It's about the man that just caused a scene at the entrance of the hospital. Uh, Dr. Yates is going to be like, look, right, he's, he's, he's northern. Dr. Yates is northern. He speaks like this. Look, detective, says Dr. Yates, I really don't have time for questions about some cocaine addict vagrant. My assistant and I just finished up, up a 12-hour surgery. Do you realise how much focus you need for that? I've been here since yesterday night. And I don't know where my accent's from at all. It's just generic northern. Okay. Your instinct tells you that Dr. Yates is an innocent man. Dr. Yates is the killer. Dr. Yates isn't the killer, but he's hiding something. Uh, Look, I really don't have time for questions about some cocaine addict vagrant. My assistant and I just finished a 12-hour surgery. Do you realise how much focus you need for that? I've been here since yesterday night. I think that uh, Dr. Yates is also taking cocaine because in order to get the energy to do a 12-hour surgery, I think he's probably taking the pills too. And somehow he's been dealing them. So I think he's not the killer. He's just a drug dealer. Yes. Jurassic Park. I never told you the man was high on cocaine, you say. How did you know that? Mm. Dr. Yates looks a bit taken aback. He stutters for a moment uh, 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 and scratches his nose before responding. Oh, the, the signs are obvious, of course, he says. I study drugs and medicine, for God's sake. You take, take a step closer to Dr. Yates. What is going on with your accent, you say? Your cold, analysing eyes piercing through him. I know a liar when I see one, Dr. Yates. And I'm looking at one right now, you say. That's part of my job. Now, I've heard you've been having disputes with Dr. Ander, who just happened to turn up dead this morning. But of course, you couldn't have killed him because you've been in surgery for 12 hours. Dr. Yates looks shocked. Ander is dead, he chokes. Ander's dead? You continue. What's in your bag, Dr. Yates? You ask. The surgeon clutches at his black bag tighter. No, he clutches his bag tighter and moves it away from you. 
Like, you can't look at this. There's a moment of tension before Yates gives in. He passes the bag over to you and slumps down on the ground, defeated. Another person slumping down. You rifle through the bag. We've had rummage. Now we have rifle through the bag and find exactly what you'd expected. You pull out several vials of drugs, little glass containers. Can you explain these, you ask? Dr. Yates says nothing. It's obvious he was stealing the drugs and selling them to people like the addict that was causing trouble at the hospital. You're going to need to come with me, you say. Right? Hmm. So Yates has been taking and dealing drugs from the hospital. He had a run-in with the dead doctor. He is a heart surgeon. What's going on? Is he just dealing and taking drugs or is he involved in the murder of... But he seemed to be shocked and devastated about the death of his colleague, even though they hadn't been getting on. Hmm. Let's continue. A few hours later at Scotland Yard, the police headquarters. Another dead end, shouts Mardlow in frustration. Our records show that the addict we caught today at the hospital, Ed Cook, was in the drunk tank at the yard, sleeping off a binge drinking, uh, a day of binge drinking, on the nights of both murders. There's no way he could have killed Annette Tone or Dr. Matthew Ander. So the crazy cocaine addict guy uh, is innocent because he was in prison because he was drunk both nights. You bite your nail, reflecting on the clues. There you sit at your desk, leaned backwards in your weathered wooden chair, deep in thought. Hmm. Hmm. We can't afford to have a new dead body, heart torn out and mutilated every day, says Mardler, in an accent that wasn't his. <laughs> we, can't, we can't afford to have a new dead body, heart torn out and mutilated every day, says Mardler. There's already panic growing on the streets. They're calling him the Harrison Way heartbreaker. There's a man out there that grabs people off the street, strips them naked, cuts their hearts out, and then tosses them out for us to find. <sighs> Rain begins to come down on the streets of London. The gentle pitter-patter grows into a powerful thunderstorm. But you can't help but think that you'll need more than that to wash this city clean. You spend the night at Scotland Yard, meticulously going over the evidence. Will there be another body in the morning? As the sun sets, does so another Londoner's life. Let's carry on. Come on, we need some action to end on a... Um, a cliffhanger at the end of this episode. Flander Drive. You and Mardler stride through the fog past police officers surrounding the third body. <gasps> There's been a third killing. The trilogy. A familiar scent of varnish drifts past your nose. Hello, varnish. Have we heard varnish before in this story? I think we have. Julian. Our old friend Julian. Could he be involved in this somehow? You brush away thoughts of dread. Dread of like, could it be Julian? You brush away those thoughts. All you can think about is the wooden chess set. Uh, the dread of the body, I mean. Oh, dead body. Push that away. All you can think about is the wooden chess set, hand-carved by Julian Ashworth and varnished. The smell gets stronger. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe Julian is the dead guy. Oh, no. His old friend Julian? Is it him? Your fears are confirmed. Oh no, 
as your eyes find the body, ripped open like the rest and missing the heart. That familiar head of curly red hair lies motionless on the hard, cold London street. Oh no, Julian! No! You pause. It's almost too much to take in, as you see Julian Ashworth dead in the gutter. Mardler sees your pain and then makes the connection. Is that... Wait, is that the historian? Mardler asks, trying to find words, stumbling through his sentence. Wait, is that... Is that who is that the historian? Yes, you reply coldly, as you continue to walk over to the corpse. You look down at Julian's face, the same tormented look etched on it as the others. Mardler is paralyzed in shock, trying to understand your emotions. What is this sick fiend after? What is this? A deranged nutcase? Black market organ stealing? Satanic ritual? You're not frozen like Mardler. You're the opposite. Your mind is in overdrive. (laughs) Fueled by emotion. Controlled by logic. The deaths are probably due to... Is it a crazed murderer with no restraint? An organ trading business? A religious or philosophical ritual? Oh my goodness. Well, are there any clues? The only clues we've got is Julian's face. A few days ago, you'd seen that same face full of life and happiness. Now he's no more than a decomposing conglomeration of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, phosphorus and sulphur. Nice. You see a bruise on Julian's left cheek and his lip is busted. There's a point on his cheek that's bruised in the vague shape of wolf. Wolf? A wolf, like a wild dog. As if he was hit with something hard in that image. Hit with the image of a wolf. Judging from the amount of damage to the cheekbone, depth of the indentation, and the fact that bone density is about 1.9 grams per cubic centimetre, you figure whatever hit Julian had a density between 19 and 20 grams per per pubic centimetre? Not pubic, I mean cubic. Whatever hit Julian had a density between 19 and 20 grams per cubic centimetre. That's quite dense. So he was hit with a very dense object with the image of a wolf in it what crazed murderer with no restraint an organ trading business a religious or philosophical ritual wait a minute well it's not a crazed murderer with no restraint because pulling a heart out like that seems to be quite specific an organ trading business you can't you can't trade hearts especially at that time you can't do a heart transplant then it's got to be a religious or philosophical ritual let's go for that i want it to be a cult i want it to be some crazy cult yes brilliant whoever is doing this has rules you say mardler looks over to you a look of perplexity washed over his face what rules you call those deaths within a system of rules and regulations All three bodies were stripped, killed the exact same way, dropped off 24 hours apart from each other, and none were sexually assaulted. Whoever is doing this wants to be powerful, which usually leads to sexual assault, but it hasn't because they have rules, you say. (laughs) Right. As if a religious cult uh, wouldn't commit sexual assault because of the rules of their religion. Right. Mm, Okay, well... 
I'm a little skeptical about that one. But anyway, uh, apparently it's not the religious cult because they have rules. The killer or killers aren't evolving. They're sticking to a routine, a ritual. Okay, ritualistic, which sort of fits in with a religious cult. Mardler is speechless. <gasps> you can tell he wants you to relax, to express your emotions in a healthy manner. What? <laughs> you continue. It's not organ stealing either. Why steal the hearts of three middle-aged Londoners? You'd want to go for younger, healthier citizens, and you'd take more organs. All right? What's the pattern here? Uh, why, why these victims? What are the killer's choices based on? Asks Mardler. So what is the link? Oh, God. The victim's intelligence. So who are the three victims? Well, the historian, the, uh, the surgeon, the teacher at a private school. Could be. Could be that. I don't think it's anything to do with their bodies, is it? Occupation, teacher. Um, now, this is where you feel the, the gears of my brain slowly grinding. Uh, the old rusty gears of my brain sliding into place. It could be the intelligence because, you know, we've established, we've established that they're all sort of special individuals, right? Victims, occupation, teacher, surgeon and historian teacher surgeon historian teacher surgeon and historian I, I can't see a link there and the victim's body good hair the woman had good hair julian had good hair did the doctor there was no mention of the doctor's hair i think no it's going to be the uh, intelligence yes oh my god i'm an amazing detective all three victims, Annette Tone, Dr. Matthew Ander, and Julian Ashworth, were all scholarly academics, you say. Tone uh, was a renowned musician. Ander was a brilliant surgeon. And Ashworth was one of the leading minds in military history. Your mind feels like it's burning. Mardler puts a hand on your shoulder. We can pass this case to someone else, he suggests. This is getting too personal. You turn and look at him, your eyes cold and stabbing. I'll find whoever is responsible for this, you mutter. The other two victims were picked off after work, but Julian almost never left his bookstore. Let's go there. That's where he was abducted from. Okay, we're looking for the uh, cliffhanger here at any point to bring this episode to a close. We'll continue in the next part. We continue to Ashworth Bookstore, Julian's bookstore from the beginning of the story. A suitable place maybe to end part one. The overhead silver bell jingles, ding-ling-ling-ling, as you enter Julian's bookstore. Your eyes go to footprints on the floor, dried mud tracked in during yesterday's rainstorm. Footprints, you know, if, if, you, if you walk through some water and then walk through the, along the pavement, you'll leave wet footprints. Mud is that brown stuff on the ground. Like if you go into a field and you pour water all over the ground, there's lots of mud, right? So there's mud on the floor after someone walked in from the rain. There's a few books scattered on the floor and you see Julian's knife discarded on the ground. More of the same footprints here, but more chaotic. There was a fight here, but Julian was overpowered. So the attacker was wealthy, middle class or poor. So let's have a look at the footprints on the floor. The footprints are large, judging by the size of the foot and stride length. You put whoever made these at around six foot, six inches tall. It's very tall. The shoes are formal enough to belong to someone of average to above average wealth. Looking closer at the prints, you see traces of a distinct red clay in the mud, 
particular to a few London districts with high iron content. So the guy's got good shoes. He could be rich or he could be wealthy or above average. And he comes from a specific district of London. I think he's probably upper class because um, he's probably wealthy because there are certain districts, specific districts in London uh, where only a few people live. That's probably the wealthy districts. I think he's wealthy. Am I right? Yes, got it. Good. Now, what weapon was used against Julian? Was it a cane, like a long, thin piece of wood that's curved at one end? A cane. Was it a fist with a ring on it? Was it a knife or was it an improvised weapon? Remember, the density, the density was important. It's not the cane, not dense enough. There was also the imprint of a, of a wolf. I think it could be a fist. Maybe the ring is the, the thing. Maybe the density of, of the, the, the ring, if it's a jewel, that could be it. But with a wolf on it, improvised weapon. I think it's uh, the fist with a ring on it. Yes. Oh, my God, I'm brilliant. Let's continue. Julian was attacked by a wealthy man, you say. Look at the shoe prints, formal shoes. He fought with him here. You gesture to the toppled books. But Julian was overpowered, then probably drugged. There was a bruise on Julian's face from a signet ring in the shape of a wolf. Based on the damage versus bone density, I guess the ring was made of gold. So who would wear a wolf signet ring, asks Mardler. I'm not sure, you respond, but we can check the family crests of all older families in London that live in areas with red, iron-rich soil like the mud I found on the footprints. The net is closing in on the perpetrator of these these horrific, horrific murders. As we've worked out, this is an upper-class wealthy person with a signet ring with a wolf on it. They must belong to a family who has the wolf on their crest, and this person lives in a part of London with uh, red soil on the ground. We're going to get this guy. As we move towards the Orthrus estate, very posh-looking area, it's late evening as you knock on the door to the Cl- to the Clyde Orthrus's extravagant home. We knock on the door of Clyde Orthrus's extravagant home. You had spent several hours sifting through the family trees and heraldry of prominent London families, and you found that Orthrus's family's uh, Orthrus family's crest matches the bruise on Julian's face. So it's the Orthrus family; they're the one with the wolf wolf uh, on their crest. Clyde Orthrus lives alone and is a myst- as mysterious as he is wealthy. And I'm going to have to think of another accent for Clive Orthrus. I'm sort of feel like I've run out of old posh accents at this point. The grand door swings open and you're confronted by a tall, dark-haired man, Clyde Orthrus. He holds a glass of wine and wafts it calmly, gently swishing it back and forth. What's his accent? He's terribly 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 posh can i help you detectives detectives he, I, maybe i should give him a speech impediment though so he thought of speaks like this you see can i help you detectives detectives mardler and henderson are behind you mardler steps up we've got some questions for you about some recent murders in london i'm sorry says orthrus coldly i'm quite busy at the moment he's quite busy You don't have time for this, you think to yourself. We don't have time for this bullshit, you think. Come on. You shove past Orthrus and walk into the house. Hey, 
he shouts angrily. You can't just barge in here. I have rights. The subtle scent of burning incense hits your nose and you follow it to Orthrus's massive living room. The floorboards creak noisily as you walk over them. Ahead of you, there's a large oil painting of Clyde Orthrus propped above the fireplace. It hangs over an elegant glass table which holds an empty crystal wine glass and a freshly opened bottle of wine. To your left, there's a bookshelf stacked full of volumes. You decide to further investigate the floorboards, the painting or the bookshelf. Oh, well. Large oil painting of Clyde Orthrus. Empty crystal wine glass. Freshly opened bottle of wine. Bookshelf. Or the floorboards. I'm going to check the floorboards. Maybe there's something underneath them. But let's let's check out some of these things. Let's have a look at the picture. The artist captured the coldness of Clyde Orthrus's eyes quite well. So we've had a look at the picture there. The empty crystal wine glass. Maybe he was expecting a visitor. And the bookshelf stacked full of volumes. It says, At Orthrus's eye height, you see multiple newly purchased books about the small countryside town of Winterdale. There's a woman on the cover of one of the books wearing a speckled necklace, which is apparently a Winterdale custom. So he's interested in this place called Winterdale, and the speckled necklace is a Winterdale custom. That's bound to be information that's useful later on. So the oil painting, he's cold, he's not, it doesn't seem very nice. Maybe he's expecting a visitor, that's the wine glass, and the book is all these uh, books about Winterdale and the speckled thing. So let's... Let's investigate the floorboards. Oh, I got a point for that. I don't know why. Mardler, Henderson and Orthrus join you in the living room as you're prying up loose floorboards. Prying them up means kind of like maybe using a screwdriver or a tool to like open the floorboards little bit by little bit. What the hell are you doing? cries Orthrus. Get out of my get out of my home. The smell of incense grows stronger with each removed board. You can always tell when someone badly replaced their floorboards to hide something beneath their house because of the looseness of the boards, you say. They just creak so loudly. By removing boards, you reveal a trapdoor. This is the source of the incense, the incense smell. You look up to Orthrus. Open this now. Orthrus takes a cautious step backwards and glances nervously at the cabinet drawer behind him, contemplating. He seemed to have finally broken his composure. Leave my house now, he hisses. I'm warning you. Right. Okay, I think this is the, the cliffhanger. So we've we've discovered that there's a trapdoor under the floors. It smells of incense. Wasn't there something to do with um, Colombian coffee earlier? I don't remember what that was. If someone's breath smelled of Colombian coffee. Maybe that's a red herring and not important. But um, so... We found the trapdoor. Orthrus is suddenly this this rich guy, this weird rich guy, suddenly acting very, very sort of disturbed. He's glancing at a drawer in the table behind him. I think he's got a gun or a knife in that drawer. So uh, if we break open the trapdoor, he's going to go to the drawer and get the weapon and attack us with it. I think we need to confront him now and have it out with him so that he doesn't go to get to go to the drawer, get his weapon and freaking kill us, man. That's what we're going to do. We can confront Orthrus. We can have a fight. There you come on, man. Let's have it. That's what's going to happen. But we're going to leave it there. That is the um, cliffhanger ending. 
So we seem to have narrowed down. Let's see if we can just backtrack. So there's been a murderer killing people with regularity, three people in a row, removing their heart. Um, and we've worked out that it's this upper class guy called Orthrus. He's maybe a member of some sort of religious uh, sect or cult. Um, why has he been murdering people in this fashion and removing the hearts? We think it's like some sort of ritual of some kind. Is the incense something to do with that? Maybe this is incense connected to this weird religious cult he's related to. I don't know. And what's going to happen? If we attack him, is he going to fight back? If we go to the trapdoor, is he going to attack us with a weapon? What's going to happen when we confront Orthrus? And is he going to be the murderer? Maybe there's going to be some action coming, but we're going to stop right here. And I'll carry on in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to Luke's English Podcast. I sincerely hope that you've been enjoying this story and that it's engaged you all the way through. Don't forget, you can check out this story. It's called Victorian Detective 3 and it's on textadventures.co.uk. You could play through the story yourself, uh, but part two of this will be coming very soon. I've no idea if the story's going to conclude in part two or if it'll keep going, but we will see. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll speak to you again on the podcast soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.